Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, October 12th. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We're going to start off this week by talking about some big personnel decisions looming in front of the Trump administration. They nominated a new Department of Homeland Security secretary this week. But, of course, they've still got that empty slot to fill at Health and Human Services. And, as Nancy Cook will tell us, uh, they are deep in the weeds of choosing a new chair of the Federal Reserve. So we'll talk about those and more personnel decisions uh, that the White House will be making soon. We're also going to be talking about the spat du jour that uh, Donald Trump has found himself in, this time with a member of his own party, Senator Bob Corker. They got into it on Twitter, back and forth in the news media over the weekend. We'll talk a little bit about what was said and why and what, if anything, it says about uh, Trump's relationship with his own party as, uh, as we've talked about recently, as they are trying to notch a major win on tax reform legislation sometime in the next few months. And we're going to wrap up this week talking a little bit about campaign finance. There is a pattern emerging across the Senate landscape for 2018 of Republican challengers to Democratic senators lining up mega donor support before even jumping in to the races in the manner that we saw from presidential candidates like Jeb Bush and Scott Walker and others in the 2016 presidential campaign. So we'll talk a little bit about who's doing it, why it matters, what it means about some of these crowded primaries that are emerging, and some of the other dynamics that are already shaping the battle for the Senate in 2018. A couple quick notes before we jump into that. Remember, if you have questions for us, you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com. We'd love to hear from you. And along the same lines, please remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. It helps us improve the show. We love hearing from you. So please remember, subscribe, rate us, write written reviews of Politico's Nerdcast. All right, we have our regular... Uh, guests back here this week, White House reporter Nancy Cook. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. And national political reporter Eliana Johnson. Hey, Scott. All right. So let's uh, start with our first data point, number three. There are three major personnel picks in the works for the Trump administration. We saw one on Wednesday with the new pick to head the Department of Homeland Security, which uh, you could have read first on Politico, thanks to Eliana's intrepid reporting. Uh, But that still leaves Health and Human Services, uh, vacated by former Secretary Tom Price, as well as the race to be the new chair of the Federal Reserve as these major personnel decisions still in development. So, Nancy, let's start with the Fed position. It's not one people typically spend a lot of time thinking about, but it's obviously of huge importance. What's developing there? Yeah, so President Trump uh, is starting to interview people. He has been interviewing people for that job. And, is you know, they're weeks away from making a pick. I was told this yesterday. I reported a story on it. Um, you know, last week he said the decision would come within two to three weeks. And just as a benchmark, uh, President Obama picked Ben Bernanke, who was his Fed chair during the financial crisis at the end of October. And the goal really is to have someone in place by January or February 
uh, Janet Yellen, the current Fed chair's term expires in February. So this has been consuming a lot of the White House's attention. And interestingly, they really view this on par with a Supreme Court pick almost. I mean, not quite as serious as that, but definitely sort of even a bigger decision than a cabinet secretary because the Fed chair is the top economic position in government, has so much oversight over financial regulation, monetary policy, um, inflation, and so much of President Trump's sort of brand and mantra on the campaign trail was tied to his ability to bring down unemployment, which is something that the Fed helps advise him on, and also just making the economy as healthy as possible. So this is being taken hugely seriously inside the, the Trump White House. Who's in I think the they're going to talk about the new Fed chair as much as they talk about Gorsuch, like on the campaign trail. That seems <laughs> unlikely to me. Yeah, I feel like that seems unlikely because I feel like who they pick may not necessarily mesh as much with conservatives as Gorsuch did. Like it won't be the same litmus test. But inside the White House, it's a huge thing. So basically, there's like four people in the running now um, and two definite front runners. Um, I would say uh, the folks that are the front runners are Jerome Powell, who is a current Fed governor. He also worked at the Carlyle Group. He's a lawyer by training. He's not an economist. And uh, my colleague Ben White and I had a scoop yesterday that Secretary Mnuchin, who's one of the four people advising the president on this pick, is really pushing for Powell. And that's the one that he's privately recommended to the president. Then there's this guy, Kevin Warsh. He was a Fed governor during the financial crisis. He worked at Morgan Stanley for a bunch of years. Now he's out at Stanford University. Um, at the Hoover Institution. And he would be a bit of, you know, Jerome Powell would sort of keep things as is. Warsh would uh, perhaps make more drastic moves on things like inflation. Um, I love these populist credentials of all these people. <laughs> I know. I know. You can you can really envision Stanford to, University. Hey, listen, there's nothing wrong with uh, Stanford know, University Carlyle, has po- populist Carlyle credentials. Carlo Morgan Stanley. There are many, there are many, you know, beloved podcast host who went to Stanford <laughs> University. But, but I can yet, just see it, Trump coming out. Now, we all love Kevin <laughs> Warsh, don't we? Well, and you can see him particularly making that argument in you know, diners in the upper Midwest uh, yep. it, when he's on the campaign trail in Can't 2019 wait. and 2020. Uh, but I think the interesting <laughs> point about this that's not wonky is that um, you know Gary Cohen, who's the head of the uh, National Economic Council, was really seen as a front runner on this for a long time. You know, he's number two at Goldman Sachs. And then he had this falling out with the president over uh, – the president's reaction to Charlottesville. And really, he's still definitely in the running, but has dropped down considerably in the in sort of the stature there. And meanwhile, Powell has really risen. And it's just an interesting sort of dynamic to explore. You know, Powell is seen as someone who's more malleable um, inside the administration. And I've been told that's why Secretary Mnuchin likes him. Whereas Cohen, you know, stock fell not because he was not perceived as competent, was basic, but basically because his relationship with the president was a little bit frayed at one point. He didn't give him three cheers for the Charlottesville response. No, but Secretary <laughs> Mnuchin sure did. So, you know, that's that's how to play your cards in the Trump administration. Okay, so that that could be a decision coming up shortly. Now, Eliana, let's let's switch over to the Department of Homeland Security. Can you give us an introduction to to Kirsten Nielsen, who was uh, announced yesterday after your story ran uh, that that uh, she was going to be the pick? Uh, she was uh, Kelly's chief of staff when he was the DHS secretary and then moved over to the White House with him. And now it seems it's going to be moving back. This is, I think, a great example of somebody who 
would it's very unlikely uh, had a, an opportunity to be a cabinet secretary in any other administration, but who is certainly competent and has endeared herself to General Kelly. Kirsten Nielsen has a she's a cybersecurity expert with a long uh, background in homeland security, and she served as General Kelly's Sherpa, guiding him through the confirmation the Senate confirmation process during the transition, and he. Uh, liked her enough and trusted her enough to keep her on as his chief of staff at DHS when he was the secretary over there, and then to bring her to the White House with him when he left DHS to become the president's chief of staff. She's really um, become known as his enforcer and I think taken a lot of flack for carrying out his orders to make the White House a more disciplined place, to keep meetings to the particular list of people who are supposed to be in them, to keep stragglers out of the Oval Office, to um, limit the paper flow that goes to the president. And I think there's a certain extent to which the story has gotten somewhat muddled and become a story about her rather than a story about General Kelly because she is, I think, taking flack for carrying out Kelly's orders. And she's played a role that is a testament to General Kelly's management style. So I think what will be really interesting in seeing her go to DHS is seeing how she operates as a number one rather than as a number two. I should also say that she was certainly a dark horse candidate for this post and emerged as at the top of the shortlist after other candidates fell through, in particular uh, Texas Congressman Michael McCall, who was considered a front runner um, after General Kelly vacated his post, but he did not impress uh, early in early interviews at the White House. So uh, definitely a roundabout way for uh, somebody to become a member of the cabinet. But we've certainly seen stranger things happen in this administration. Yeah, here we are. Nancy? And I also think just the other thing to point out is that um, Nielsen going over to DHS, uh, you know, creates this huge vacancy in the White House as well, because she was, as Eliana said, General Kelly's kind of enforcer and did a lot of the day-to-day management of making sure that there were only principals in the meetings. And it'll be curious to see if he fills that slot, because I feel like there's no one else in the White House with whom he has such a close and trusting relationship. And that seems pretty necessary to have someone in that role. So that's another opening to watch. Yeah, I thought uh, I, I thought those those profiles of her and kind of taking this flack, as you said, Eliana, for imp- trying to impose order on the White House were essentially people carping at her because they didn't feel like they could complain about Kelly at this point. That that, that seemed like maybe or taking it a step too far. misunderstanding her role. I mean, the way I turned it to people is that she was willing to be hated so that he could be liked. And I've mm. seen in, in various jobs um, throughout my career that there are some managers who, who manage in this way where they have a number two who is willing to bring down the hammer on people and they do so less often because it makes their relationships easier to manage. Well, and interestingly, you know, Gary Cohn, when he was at uh, Goldman Sachs, that was kind of his role. He was the number two. He was like the hammer, the jerk, the person that got in everyone's face. You know, now he's more of a, like a principal at the White House and he's viewed as a very affable person uh, in, within the White House while his staff is the one that has sharp elbows. So I think that Eliana's point is just that, you know, people play different roles in uh, different positions. Mm. I, w- I want to probe one more thing that you said about her, Eliana, that, that this is not someone who you would typically expect to be getting a, a cabinet position. I mean, th- th- is that 
re- reflective of the, you know, we've talked a little bit about kind of the the thinner than usual pool of available people for one reason or another. Right. There are, I think there are two primary reasons that the Trump administration has gone to. I mean, she's essentially a, a complete unknown to the, the American people or the, to the general public. The first is that many people who would have been qualified for this job, they have been ruled out by presidential personnel because they've been critical of the president in some way or were clearly anti-Trump on the campaign. And the second reason is that people have seen the way that the president has treated some of his cabinet members like Jeff Sessions and Rex Tillerson, and they simply don't want to be a part of the cabinet. I know there was at least one um, potential nominee who turned down the job. And so that's left, I think, People of a range of in a, in a range of competencies who are lesser known, um, who have seized opportunities to serve in this administration. I thought it was, you know, also just along those lines. I mean, the uh, the now the acting secretary of Health and Human Services, who the deputy secretary, was not even uh, confirmed by the Senate until uh, Price, who was supposed to be his boss, had. Left and resigned, and so th- that's obviously still one. If you feel Nancy, um, just l- last point here. We've talked about this a little bit in the past, but has has the pace of filling out those kind of uh, deputy and undersecretary jobs has that sped up at all this this year? And you know, we've we've talked before about how uh, filling those jobs has been more difficult and it's taken more time than past administrations and that caused problems here and there. I would say the pace has definitely picked up in the last like two months or so. We're seeing a lot more people, um, a lot more nominations being sent to the Senate. I would say that there's still a big backlog in the Senate approving those. Um, And also there's just been, you know, as Eliana sort of hinted at in talking about the DHS opening, you know, it's you need to keep a pipeline or have a big roster of potential people in mind so that if candidates fall through for cabinet positions or political appointees appointments, either because they decide they ultimately don't want it or they don't make it through the vetting. You need to have sort of a bigger crew of folks in mind. And I've been told um, in my own reporting that this is something that General Kelly is kind of looking at. This is something that he's been frustrated with. And there's also a sense that he wants to give cabinet secretaries a bit more autonomy to pick their own political appointments. The White House under Reince Priebus was having uh, had much greater control over this. And that's one thing that Kelly wants to change. And so I think that that's something we could potentially see, uh, you know, step up in the in the next month or so. Interesting. All right. We'll keep an eye out for that as uh, as we await the announcement of the, the new Fed chairman and uh, obviously who's going to be leading Department of Health and Human Services and who knows what else might be happening uh, on the personnel front in the next dun, dun, dun. few weeks, months, <laughs> year. Speaking of which, this would be a good time to share a plug for a new Politico podcast, Politico Money, hosted by Ben White, who's the author of the Morning Money newsletter, writes about economics and Wall Street and all that for us. And he is going to have Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin on his podcast for the inaugural episode. So make sure to check that out, Politico Money. And that will be launching on Wednesday, October 18th. All right. Well, let's meander down Pennsylvania Avenue from the executive branch to the Hill and check in with Senator Bob Corker. Our data point for this segment is four, and that's how many times President Trump has tweeted in anger about the Tennessee senator in the last few days. Someone who until recently was seen as something of an ally of President Trump's in the Senate, although 
well, and we'll talk about this a little bit. I think the you know the extent to which that was true may have been a little overblown. Uh, that was until this happened. I think uh, Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Mattis, and uh, Chief of Staff Kelly uh, are those people that help separate our country from chaos. And, uh, Trump uh, responded uh, by, among other things, belittling Corker's height, talking about how he was begging Trump for his support to run for re-election and then retired when Trump wouldn't give it, which is of questionable uh, veracity. Eliana, what, what happened here? Why is Corker doing this and how, how significant is it and what does it say about Trump and his relationship with the Republicans on the Hill and the party more generally? Thank you for teeing me up there. Um, <laughs> okay. This is my least favorite story of the week. Um, I will say to Trump's tweet, I don't at all believe that Corker was begging for Trump's endorsement <laughs> and then decided not to run when Trump didn't give it. I do believe that Corker wanted to be secretary of state and was somewhat disappointed when he didn't get that job. However, for the whole – the fact that this made big headlines, I just do not understand. I basically think that every member of the Senate thought what Corker said, which is that the president is kind of crazy and that many of the people around him spend time trying to do damage control. And then Corker decided to retire and set it on the record and everybody acted like it was such a huge deal. I think it basically changes nothing. And I don't think any other senator who is – not retiring is going to come out and say this sort of thing. But I just think it has no effect. And I really don't understand what everybody was getting all up in a lather about. The other thing I don't understand about Corker is he seems to find think that it's helpful to Madison Tillerson for him to say that they're the two people standing between um, total chaos and, you know, a semblance of order. I think making those sorts of comments is very damaging to them in terms of their relationship with the president. So I really don't understand his thinking on this unless he's trying to puff himself up and make himself, uh, you know, he's make himself look good. Um, well, no senator has ever been accused of, I mean, of such conduct. Sorry, I'm trying to eat this really delicious popcorn here <laughs> oh, while speaking into the microphone. Um Yes, yeah, so I think he's only saying this because he's retiring and is trying to make himself look look like a voice of principle now. Um, and I, but I, but at the same time, I do think he speaks for basically, you know, fifty percent of the Republican conference on this. Well, and shouldn't it be news? Shouldn't it be news? I mean, I know, like you say, that this keeps happening over and over that people are saying this, but shouldn't it be news when a senator comes out and says that the president of his party is is crazy and that the White House is an adult daycare center? Well, I think what's news is just that President Trump takes the bait. I mean, you know, I think Corker was saying something that a lot of people uh, on the Hill think, but then Trump sort of reacts uh, so much and starts tweeting at Corker. And, you know, while that's unnecessary news, it's just interesting that the president of the United States would – uh, you know, react to this. I, and I don't think the Corker thing really becomes interesting until he and other Republicans start blocking Trump's agenda, you know, in much greater numbers. And we saw that with health care with Senator McCain, Collins and Murkowski, who didn't who voted no on repealing Obamacare and replacing it. And that plan and moving forward with that, it'll be interesting to see, like, if they try to do tax reform, if they can actually put a bill together, 
are there more than just three votes lost on that? And will Corker be among them? I think that's when it starts to matter. Well, in Cor- I just disagree with you quickly. Yeah, please. I don't think it's yes, news. Yes, argument. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't think it's news that Trump took Corker's bait because he's always going to do this. However, I do think it's newsworthy that Corker took Trump's bait in return and he's like going getting in a spat with the president on Twitter. It's like we know Corker, you know, isn't mentally ill. You know, there are question, more questions about the president's sanity than there are about Bob Corker. So when I see a, m- a member of the Senate in good standing getting into this with the president, I find it much weirder that the member of the Senate is doing this than I do that then Trump is doing this, for which I fully expect that from him. That's a good point. But just quickly, like, don't you think that part of it now is that Corker wants to uh, look at his legacy and wants to distance himself from the president? I mean, I do, which is why I think it's a totally political move. But I still think it's completely foolish and makes him look like an idiot. Nancy, really endearing myself to Corker. Right? <laughs> Nancy, I'm, I'm curious about something you just said, though, because, uh, you know, in, in terms of whether this uh, ends up or doesn't being you know, being part of Republicans blocking Trump's agenda and stuff like that, because. We talked about tax reform. All roads go back to tax reform. Uh, they um, do with me. I love yeah. those taxes. I love them. <laughs> and uh, in particular, I mean, Corker has been very strident uh, about what should and shouldn't be in tax reform, specifically in terms of whether or not it should increase the deficit. He says it should not. But that's on the table as Republicans are uh, negotiating this, as we talked about at great length last week, right? There could the ultimate the bill that comes forward ultimately could increase the deficit. Exactly. And there's actually two steps that Corker is going to be a key vote on. One is, uh, you know, one thing that we keep forgetting is that both the House and the Senate still have to pass a budget resolution that will set up these instructions for them to do tax reform. Neither has done that yet. And so Corker, you know, is on the budget committee. um, And so... You know, that's a key one. But then also he how he votes actually on the floor on a tax reform bill will be really key as well. And the other thing is, it's not only these two votes that Corker will be key on. But the thing is, is that Corker has a history of being a fiscal hawk. Um, It's been a major thing for him. He doesn't want he doesn't feel like we should, you know, do a bunch of tax cuts that blow a hole in the deficit. And I think now that he's retiring, he'll feel more of a sense of Uh, you know, to stick with his principles on that. And this is something that he's already raised, a question that he's already raised, because several people in the administration are not that concerned with the deficit in terms of this potential tax package. The other thing that is significant, you know, is that depending on if or when Rex Tillerson steps down, I think most people think it's a win, is that Corker is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and he will be involved in the confirmation of the next secretary of state. And that's a place where he could really exert his influence both in the, in the hearings and then when he casts a vote. Unless, of course, it's, it's Bob Corker, which exactly. seems super, super likely exactly. at this point, <laughs> given, uh, <laughs> given how his relationship with the exactly. president is going. Um, just one one last thing on this. I mean, the you know, the the public comment from other Republican members of Congress that we read in Politico and the New York Times and elsewhere was that they they really wanted Corker and Trump to both move move past this spat, this back and forth that was going on on Twitter and then in in the pages of the New York Times. Privately, has this has this kind of changed any any calculations that that Republicans on the Hill have regarding the administration, or is it really you know is this kind of Something, something they've come to expect at this point. I think it's all a theatrical show, and as Nancy said, we'll we'll see what happens with tax reform. But I don't think the fact that they had this public spat is actually going to be the deciding factor in a vote on tax reform. That's, I think that the merits, the, these guys are going to vote on the merits of the bill, and that the White House 
it's going to be the way that the White House weighs in and leans on senators in that process that it's that's more more significant rather than these sorts of spats. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. I'm sure we won't have we to wait. Shall see. We see. I'm sure we won't have to wait too long for the next spat, and then we can analyze that one and uh, see see what that means. All right. For our third and final segment this week, we're going to switch over into the campaign world and specifically the campaign finance world. And here to talk about that and particularly about a story that he and Maggie Severns wrote this week, we have Kevin Roblard from Campaign Pro. Great to be here. Thank you for being back, Kevin. Um, so our data point for this segment is $3.5 million. Uh, Republican candidates across the country are piling into races against Democratic senators, and some of them, an increasing number, are jumping in with support from a major mega donor. So $3.5 million is how much money uh, one of them has already given to a super PAC backing a Republican in Wisconsin. Uh, so that's one candidate, but he has a primary opponent, and that candidate jumped in with mega donor support of her own. So Kevin, take us take us inside the wood-paneled country club of Beloit, Wisconsin, <laughs> and tell us tell us what went on there and, and why it's important. So that said country club was the site of a meeting between uh, State Senator Leah Buchmier and uh, Diane Hendricks, who is a billionaire who more or less owns the town of Beloit, Wisconsin at this point. She um, has bought up a huge amount of land and is really trying to revive the town, which had been struggling. So that's one of the things she's known for. The other thing Hendricks is known for is being a consistent and large financial supporter of Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker and other Republicans, particularly in Wisconsin. Uh, in this case, Vukmir, who didn't know Hendricks particularly well before this, uh, met with uh, Hendricks and sort of some of her business associates and friends and I believe family members um, and basically talked with her for about two hours. And you know, at the end, uh, Hendricks stood up and said, you know, you have my support. And that was a really crucial thing for Vukmir's campaign because on the other side of the GOP primary is Kevin Nicholson who has the backing of his own super donor and really they need that firepower to match Nicholson's firepower. Once one is in, you kind of have to yeah. have, have the other. Uh, but this isn't only happening in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. I mean, Wisconsin is notable because mm -hmm. there is there's this head-to-head -head mm -hmm. going on. But uh, we've seen this in Missouri, mm -hmm. in Tennessee. There are a few other examples just all over the country. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because it's sort of a step up in – it goes beyond – candidates just scrambling for donors, which they do literally all the time. It's what takes up most of their time is raising money, honestly. This is saying I have this billionaire here ready to spend millions on my behalf and announcing it almost as you announce your campaign. Or even before. Even before in a way that you wouldn't have done. You might have tried to keep the fact that there was one incredibly rich person willing to spend a lot of money for you a secret until they started paying for television ads for you. Now this is something Republican candidates are bragging about. It's They think it's a way to show viability, to scare other people out of races, to clear the field for themselves. And it's also you know, something they don't see any political drawback towards at this point. The and and we should we should know part of the reason we're seeing this so much on the Republican side is because most of the Democratic Senate candidates of 2018 are going to be incumbents, mm -hmm. uh, and the ones who aren't are already members of Congress. And there's difficult rules, more yeah. difficult rules, I guess we should say, about exactly what they are allowed to do in terms of soliciting mm -hmm. uh, soft money. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but you know, who who are f- a few of the other examples around the map of of what's going on? This kind of like Jeb Bush style mm-hmm. um, early super PAC prospecting. So another really prominent example is Josh Hawley. I'm sure, Jeb Jeb Bush loves these people. Loves the comparison to these <laughs> folks. He's well, gonna relish that, that. that. That's his. That's that, that's his place <laughs> in history. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's gonna love that you said that too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the most prominent is probably Josh Hawley. He's the attorney general of Missouri and uh, the Republican sort of preferred candidate to take on Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill there. Um, he has basically lined up support um, from the Humphreys family, which is a very wealthy family in Missouri that prominently gives to Republicans there. Uh, and really from mega donors all around the country. He has a relationship with the Mercer family, which is also has ties obviously to Steve Bannon. Um, he's really in his work as um, a lawyer for conservative causes, got to know a lot of the major donors throughout the country and in his home state of Missouri. And really he was able to line up a lot of them. Uh, the Club for Growth has a donor willing to match up to $5 million in donations uh, for Holly, um, which is really an astounding number. It's not quite clear who that donor is. But this is all an example of just people bringing in huge, huge amounts of money early on. Another good example is Andy Ogles, who's sort of a lesser-known candidate in Tennessee in the GOP primary there. Uh, He has a car dealer named Lee Beeman ready to provide up to $4 million for his campaign. Can I just ask, um, did did the Trump – Trump's campaign and then this Alabama race not suggest to people that maybe money doesn't matter as much as we once thought – I think I think it's definitely true that it doesn't matter as much as we once thought, but I I I think you'd rather have it than not. Well, and, I right? I would agree with that, but it I still find it interesting. Like I mean, ne- ne- necessary but not sufficient is how yeah. I would put it. Yeah, um, and none of these candidates are Donald Trump or even Roy Moore. You know, Donald Trump is obviously you know nationally famous well before he was president. Um, Roy Moore had a 30-year political career in Alabama to build up his name name ID with Republican primary voters. Um, Leah Vukmir, for instance, in Wisconsin is a state senator. She's probably known to some of the Republican primary electorate, Mm -hmm. but not all of it. And Kevin Nicholson, for example, was a a total unknown who basically Mm -hmm. came out of nowhere. So the – I mean I think it depends on what type of candidate you are. I don't think um, it matters as much once you have the name ID. Um, but I think it matters a lot if you need to spend a lot of money introducing yourself to voters with, you know, mm-hmm. positive television ads. And uh, Eliana, you know, Kevin brought this up, but this is also part of the, you know, kind of Steve Bannon primary pitch that that he's making to candidates around the country. I mean, some of it is is tied up in his personal mystique uh, to to whatever extent. That is, but but some of it is also tied up in the fact that he has forged this close relationship with the the Mercers, uh, Robert Mercer and his daughter Rebecca, the Republican mega donors, and there's uh, this idea I think you know that that certainly that he's pushing, and that I think looks like it's going to be more the case this time that they are going to be there to provide a big financial boost for some of these candidates who are considering whether or not to get in and challenge incumbent Republican senators as part of his war on Mitch McConnell. Steve Bannon has a longstanding relationship with the Mercer family. They are important funders of not only the Breitbart news site, but now of Milo Yiannopoulos, the provocateur and uh, 
I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, I think provocateur sounds. Provocateur, sounds we, we can leave it at that. Uh, who's now no longer at at Breitbart, and yeah, I would say even if money is not putting candidates over the top anymore, it surely is, is helping Bannon encourage candidates to jump into the race by telling him that they'll have plenty of funds. But I think I, the dynamic that I'm really interested in is you know there's a, there's clearly a bitter civil war happening within the Republican Party. But my sense from my perch where I'm very in touch with the rank and file rank and file Republicans from Washington, D.C., in touch with the grassroots is really that the Republican Party is becoming the party of Trump and that despite spending millions and millions of dollars, the establishment backed McConnell backed candidates are probably going to going to struggle in 2018 and that even if Trump weighs in on their behalf, it really is the Bannon and Mercer back candidates who um, have their finger on the pulse of of where the the base of the party is. So how how does that um, how how does how does that affect twenty eighteen, Kevin? I mean, I think it it this is very much a race by race matter, um, and some of the we saw in Alabama. Um, the danger, particularly if you were a never Trump type person in 2016, uh, that will absolutely kill you in a, in a Republican primary now. Uh, the interesting part of that is that that was actually Mitch McConnell who was making that attack against Congressman Mo Brooks in Alabama. Um, but it it so it really does show that this is Trump's party. But there's going to be competing claims on who is the Trump candidate in any given one of these races. Um, you know, you can already see this in a place like West Virginia, where uh, Bannon um, and uh, America First policies have endorsed uh, Patrick Morrissey, the Attorney General, there to take on Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. But the Mercers had already donated money to Congressman Evan Jenkins, who is Morrissey's primary opponent. And there's going to be a lot of things like that where lots of people are going to be trying to claim sort of the Trump mantle in these races. And Which tells lo- you where, yeah, where, where the, the base the party of the party is. is. Yeah. yeah, but the thing is – and a lot of them aren't very good fits for it. In Indiana, for instance, the two leading candidates are both sitting incumbent congressmen who have basically been politicians their entire lives. They're, neither one of them is you know, an outsider coming in to blow up the establishment, although uh, Congressman Todd Rokita is trying to claim that mantle pretty clearly. But he's also a guy who – held statewide office back in 2002. So he's not exactly new to the scene. I mean, Patrick Morrissey was a lobbyist with a yeah. client list a mile long, yeah. the, the, uh, which you know is not exactly – would not seem to be a drain-the-swamp yeah. uh, fit. But, well, here, here's something else I've been wondering about this in the past few days. This uh, – the, the way this is going and the, the, the effort of these candidates to be Trump candidates in their races – and the extent to which that is tied up in being it, – it, it's becoming tied up in being an anti-McConnell candidate. Mm-hmm. Does that end up playing into not just these primaries but these general election matchups? I was struck – we talked about Josh Hawley in Missouri. Mm-hmm. I was really struck in the reaction uh, to Hawley jumping into Missouri. Claire McCaskill must have said the words Mitch McConnell at least six or ten times mm-hmm. in her interview with, I think, the Kansas City Star mm-hmm. uh, about Josh Hawley jumping into the race. That Oh, Mitch McConnell's candidate is going to be raising money for Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell really you know, did a good mm-hmm. job recruiting him into the race. Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. She clearly sees that as her ticket 
uh, to another term uh, and and her ticket out of a very tough situation. She might be the most vulnerable mm-hmm. senator in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's difficult for me to tell if McCaskill and her campaign believe that's effective general election strategy or if that's them trying to fuss with a Republican primary as Claire McCaskill has done in the past. Uh, if that's trying them trying to almost gin up more conservative opposition to Josh Hawley. If that's what they're doing, then I think that's really fool. Like the reason it, th- this is a hobby horse of mine. El- Eliana got to to jump on her high horse earlier in the podcast. Now I'm going to jump on my high horse. Like Claire McCaskill messed around with the Republican primary in 2012 and essentially helped Todd Akin win the primary. And then he it took him all of like five minutes to shoot himself in the mm-hmm. in foot, um, and she beat him by you know a million bajillion points. Mm-hmm. Um, but Part of the reason it worked is because no one saw it coming. And yeah. you, like if everyone's expecting it – that and also playing around in the other party's primary almost never works. The reason why yeah. everyone remi- remembers that one, which was six years ago, is because that was the one time it worked that year. Yeah, and you, you, you see a lot more threats to mess around in the other party's primary than you actually ever see it happen. Uh, the, the one thing I will say, I think it's very interesting the extent to which there are – some clear front runners, and you see both the establishment, sort of McConnell wing, and the conservative Bannon wing trying to claim them. Uh, in Breitbart this week, there was a pretty hilarious paragraph about Josh Hawley, where it was like the establishment's trying to claim that Josh Hawley's one of them, but he's really one of us. Trust us. Whereas Josh Hawley is a dude who went to like Yale and Stanford, and Man, John Stanford's Dan- coming up a lot in this podcast. Yeah, uh, John Danforth is his mentor. Like Josh Hawley has very clear ties to the Republican political establishment. He's a pretty conservative guy and probably conservative enough to be acceptable to conservatives. But to pretend he's not an establishment figure at all is also kind of foolish. You're also kind of seeing this with Marsha Blackburn in Tennessee. Um, She's another candidate where they seem to really be agreeing on, where McConnell allies seem to like her quite a bit and Bannon seems to like her quite a bit. And I think that's pretty interesting that there's also candidates that they're fighting over because they're both trying to sort of shape this narrative about where the party is going. Hmm. That's really interesting. All right. Well, it is mid-October. I guess the first primaries start in mid-March. And so we've got a little ways to go. And then some of the really good ones like Wisconsin and Missouri aren't going to get going until the end of next summer. So Mm -hmm. a lot of time for this to develop, a lot of room for all sorts of people to change their minds about Mm -hmm. these people once or maybe even twice more. So, uh, Kevin, uh, thank you for keeping track of that for us. We will definitely have you you back for an update uh, in the not-too-distant future. All right. Great to be here. Eliana, thank you for being here as always. Thanks, Scott. Stanford sucks. All right. Thank you to everyone for being here. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners. Remember, if you have questions for us, you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com. Also, please remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. We love getting your feedback. We want to hear from you so we can keep improving the show and growing the Nerdcast audience. So remember, please subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Politico Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and Politico researcher and uh, playbook producer, Zach Montalaro. Thanks again for tuning in. We will talk to you again next week.